Welcome back to Payday, the first podcast for global payroll professionals. I'm your host, David Brock. I think one of the most important things is no matter how busy a day is, you've got to put the time in to get strategic. You have to really be focused on your team, wherever they may be, to make sure they're engaged. So look into 2021, maybe 2022, look at some things from a benefits perspective that may help those employees rebuild financially. Today, we're going to be talking about minimum wage. Starting in the U.S. and then panning out globally, we'll be discussing the impact on labor costs and considering how location plays a role in where to place your people. Plus, key global trends for the future of work. Joining me today is John McFarland, SVP of Client Development at Venture Employer Services. John, welcome to the Payday Podcast. I, I know this is not your first podcast, uh, but uh, we're, we're glad to have you here uh, to talk to our audience, a lot of HR and global payroll professionals that work at multinational organizations. And uh, I thought we'd start by introducing who you are, John, and what uh, what you do. Uh, so welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I have been in the uh, PEO space for almost 14 years. Um, I have a lot of background in HR leadership operations. Um, prior to the time in the PEO world, um, I have done uh, organized crime ring investigations as well as uh, a lot of sales um, in real estate and um, auto loans. And, you know, what, what I find most passionate about uh, what I do now is the opportunity to educate and work with business owners and then watch them take that knowledge and grow the business or improve something that was kind of a headache for them. Um, and then, you know, come back around and say, hey, you know, how did that go? And, and just hear the stories of, of how it's improved and how it's gotten better. And, and I just love that. Mm-hmm. And beyond their growth opportunities, John, why does small businesses make you tick? What's behind your passion for the small business, for the small business owner? You know, for me, it's just I I love the the small business um, model. I love the opportunities that people have to start a business. And I find that people are passionate about what they do or, you know, the service they deliver, but they're not always knowledgeable in the things that, that, you know, pertain to employment law and, you know, payroll and workers comp and all the things that, you know, could really hurt a business if it's done incorrectly. Um, or, you know, you can drive your employees away or hurt your turnover and not really understand why um, and have that opportunity to, you know, just impart some of those, the, that knowledge that I have and then watch them flourish and watch them grow. I just, I love it. Um, you know, I love going into to, to local businesses and shopping in these local businesses and getting services from local businesses. And I just want to see that grow. Yeah. And according to research from MIT, smaller businesses account for two thirds of net job growth and 44 percent of the U.S. economic activity. So they're really important because they're the ones to help the economy adjust more quickly to downturns, and even upturns. So in light of that, let's spend some time today talking about some new legislation and initiatives around minimum wage, starting with the U.S. and then let's look more globally. 
With more people working virtually, moving out of metropolitan areas at a rapid pace, what's your view on the state of minimum wage in the U.S.? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, with respect to the United States, minimum wage, especially in, in, in the realm of providing, you know, payroll services and HR is, is a challenge from the respect of there's states that follow federal minimum wage. There's states that have their own state minimum wage. I believe we're up to 29 states plus D.C. that have their own that's above federal. And then you have states like California that not only have their own state minimum wage, but they have local minimum wages. I've actually lost count of the number of specific locales that have their own minimum wage, and it either pertains to a city or a county. So it makes it really challenging. One of the big challenges I've seen is, for instance, you may have a business in Orange County, which is one minimum wage, but you send your employees to L.A. County or L.A. City to do work. They have to be paid the L.A. City's minimum wage. And these are just little nuances that just really trip up employers that they don't quite understand because it just it doesn't make sense logistically because I'm not based in that area. But because my employee works in that area, they've got to get the, the that minimum wage. It's a challenge. How are employers that have workforces in California, in New York, some of these other states that have implemented their own minimum wages at the state level and maybe introduced some um, in certain counties, how are they navigating this? Are they are they doing this in-house? Are they relying on other sources, you know, other vendors to, to stay compliant? Yeah, it's a combination. I mean, obviously, if they employ the services of an outside, you know, resource, um, they can help stay on top of it because that's, that's what they're there to do. I think it's a huge challenge if they don't have somebody either from a contractual standpoint that they're doing payroll through a third party or that they simply just know somebody who is well-versed in that. Because unless you immerse yourself in it consistently and stay at top of it with all the changes that occur, you can you can get behind and do something incorrectly without even realizing it, but you're still liable. And that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And speaking of changes to payroll, let's come back to the U.S. again, where the minimum wage discussion has recently enjoyed a national spotlight. How do you see this playing out and, and what impact does it have on smaller companies? Yeah, what, what's, what's come up that's new, you know, because minimum wage, you know, face it, it isn't new. It happens. Um, but the new discussions have been moving the federal minimum wage from seven twenty-five an hour, stepping up to fifteen. And where that's a huge challenge is when you think of two areas. Um, you know, New York compared to say Mississippi, fifteen dollars an hour in New York City, probably not enough to live. Fifteen dollars an hour in Mississippi probably well enough to live, but what's that going to do to the local economy? How is that going to hurt the small businesses in, in smaller communities where, you know, you have kind of a a marketing or economic uh, desert, if you will, whereby because of your location, you're not going to get a huge influx of new customers because of just where you're at, but you're going to be forced to pay a higher wage. How do you survive? Something has to give. (laughs) You're right. Something's going to have to give. But, you know, during the pandemic, you've seen, you know, there are a number of data points around how many people have moved out of New York, California um, and, and 
in, in other major metropolitan areas into, you know, the Austins, the, you know, the, the even, even the Nashvilles, uh, and where, where, you know, the cost of living is clearly lower. Salaries have not necessarily been adjusted for that cost of living, but you start instituting a national minimum wage. How does that change the dynamic around where we place our workforce and where organizations start preparing to hire from? If you're paying $15 to hire somebody in, I think you, you called out Mississippi, and, and doing the same thing for New York. It, to me, from an operational efficiency standpoint, you've got your, you know, your inputs, one of which is your labor costs, and you got to have a particular output. Well, if my input increases and I don't get a, a, a substantial increase in my output through product, production or whatever, um, that's going to hurt my business. I'm going to have to make a choice. Does it mean I have to lay off now? Does it mean I have to pull back benefits? Does it mean I have to nearshore or offshore? Does it mean it destroys my business completely where I have to shut it down? I mean, there, there's there's significant factors um, that are in play when an unskilled workforce has to be paid more because the federal government mandates it as such in an area that, you know, financially just can't support that type of income. Whereas in New York, again, you know, it may not even be enough at $15 an hour with, you know, with the prices um, within the city. But maybe in rural upstate New York, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, that's a situation where it's too much. You know, there's some discussions now about establishing a way to determine a global standard for setting a minimum wage. These discussions, they usually assume that we have come to an agreement on anchoring minimum wage around livable wage and that we've agreed on how we define livable wage and what constitutes elements of pay that are part of minimum wage, right? Do you include benefits in that? Do you not? Now, if this was actually possible to do globally and the international labor organization was able to get compliance with this across the globe, what will be its impact on large and small companies? What comes to mind? What does it mean for where global businesses put their operations? Well, I mean, everything in business is is a scale, if you will, where you got to balance it. Um, you know, if you've got a global minimum wage, you're probably going to still have to focus on, you know, what's my cost of materials in that area? What's my cost of transportation in that area? And you'll probably be moving to the areas that while my labor costs is consistent, if you will. Um, where am I going to find the, the less expensive raw materials? Where am I going to find the less expensive insurance? Um, and that's probably where businesses would then pivot to put their operations in. But again, that's positive for large corporations that can do that. It's really negative for the smaller businesses that simply don't have that ability. You know, CloudPay itself finds you know, that a lot, a lot of our customers are in the retail space, mm-hmm. right? So where they have those workforces that are probably impacted by minimum wage legislation. How are you seeing organizations in retail adjust to this from, um, it, you know, from the perspective of their HR, payroll, and even recruiting processes? The biggest impact is the ability to meet that payroll um, as 
labor costs go up, uh, retail establishments, depending on their size and location, have to evaluate, can I, can I get the services done with maybe one less person, maybe have less overlap? Um, decisions have to be made because they still need to pay their rent and their utilities and all these expenses that typically go up, not down, and still provide a product that is cost effective because if they increase the prices too much, they might be pricing themselves out of the market. That's true. So, so that's the outward facing cost, right? Around mm-hmm. what you're selling the particular garment for, whatever it is. Do you think there'll be pressures internally as well to automate uh, processes, maybe even reduce uh, labor allocated to payroll HR because you're seeing pressures from uh, you know the labor force and, and the wage requirements? I can definitely see that. Um, you know, if you take a retail establishment, the product's not going to get on the shelf by itself because you have to have a body to do that. Um, but you can have, again, a kiosk where you ring up yourself, pay for it yourself, and exit the store. So I think it's really going to hit cashiers hard in retail establishment. Um, and I've actually seen that in Target stores and Walmart stores, whereby there are more, and Home Depot and Lowe's for that matter, where you see more and more self-checkouts than you do actual physical cashiers anymore. Yeah, John, I know what you mean. Those those self-checkout lines are becoming more and more practical. You know, it's, it's a fascinating convergence of trends. On the one hand, you have the power of technology to automate. And on the other, you have the pandemic accelerating a trend to minimize the amount of contact that people need to have to complete a transaction. It would be really interesting to see how those two come together. Now, I want to ask you about a somewhat related issue. The pandemic's really highlighted that it only takes one emergency to plunge people that are earning a minimum wage into the red. And I think payroll cycles have something to do with that as well, because if you're getting paid once a month or every other week, what are you supposed to do with an emergency that comes between those pay cycles? That's where I see on-demand access to earned wages. That's where an employee presses a button and they can access a portion of their pay prior to payday. That can really help a lot of people that are otherwise turning to personal loans or even more predatory lending options out there. What are your thoughts on on-demand access to earned wages for employees? I like the concept because to your point from predatory lending you know, perspectives and the fact that especially if you're talking you know, low-wage earners, you have something a car breaks down, I can't get to work, or refrigerator breaks, something of that nature, the need for funds are right now, not a week from now or two weeks from now when I get my paycheck. Um, And to have an outlet to obtain those funds right now, because I've worked it, I've earned it, uh, I think is a positive for employees. So having the ability to have either the software that does it automatically or having a third-party provider that that actually does it um, and manages it to where it's an automated process, I think definitely is a huge benefit in order to keep track of that. Uh, but I, like, I do like the concept because, you know what, life happens. 
Yeah, and, and it's, you know, the, the discussions around that concept are really stemming from the same need to think about the employee population, think about the cost of living and the situational needs of your employee population, right? And so, so I think it's coming from some of the same concerns that the minimum wage discussions are coming mm-hmm. from, although it's, it's even more personal because it's that particular individual, right? Instead of, well, what should the minimum wage for this country, this state, or this county be? Correct. Where do you think work is going? As minimum wage discussions become more prominent, as these, you know, let, let's say the U.S. national minimum wage does go up significantly. What do you think that does to work? Where is it going? Yeah, I think I think you've got that process already in place. I think you've got a lot of people that that had this mindset of, I need a brick and mortar physical location. That's how we do business. And the pandemic has forced work from home. And I think businesses are suddenly realizing it's not anything that I had expected. My productivity is actually better. I got less people calling in sick. My turnover is down. Employees have a great work-life balance and they're happy a lot of employers I've had discussions with of, hey, when this is over, do I have to go back in the building? Hey, it's your business. No, you don't. If you can operate just fine with your employees remote, you certainly can. You need to keep them engaged and you need to, to be purposeful on that. But I think that then steps into the process if you add into that increased labor costs through a federal minimum wage or a local minimum wage. I think that may then cause employers to go, well, it wasn't as I thought moving out of the physical location, um, maybe we can consider this nearshoring. And, you know, there's a big movement to Colombia and Guatemala and El Salvador where you can hire, you know, the back office positions from accounting to, um, you know, HR to payroll processing to the things that are behind the scenes of a business and pay those local labor costs, which are far less than the U.S., um, I think it, I think it'll increase that push. So the combination of the two of, of employers already learning how to work with employees that are remote. What's the difference whether they're remote here in the United States or remote there in South America or Central America? And do you see? I, I guess you'll see organizations that have historically only hired in the U.S. have never had to deal with global legislation, global requirements around pay, or even global processes. Do you expect more organizations to kind of more rapidly go global with their workforces um, after the pandemic and with uh, a more, you know, a higher national minimum wage? I think the combination of the two will definitely push more employers to look at the global economy more so than they ever did before. I think that first step is already gone, meaning I never thought we could operate remotely and it's working out great. Mm-hmm. So if that worked out great, why couldn't I hire somebody to do these backend items um, in South America, in Central America, in Europe, in Asia? Why not? And I think, I think it's really opened the eyes to that opportunity. If you're an organization who has never hired outside of the U.S., so you're maybe a payroll HR professional working in that organization. How do you prepare yourself for this? Your company's suddenly going to get a lot more complex. It may result in a more diverse workforce. It may save your organization some money, but it'll also involve a lot 
more regulation, a lot of global awareness and knowledge, even cultural um, components that you've never had to think about as an HR professional or a payroll professional. How do you prepare for that? Yeah, I think the best way is to, to switch the mindset to the more strategic approach. Um, you know, inclusion, um, engagement, you know, things that HR knows and oftentimes can't engage in because they're kind of stuck in what I like to call the hamster wheel where they're just every day I come in and I'm just knocking these things out and I can't really get to these more strategic initiatives. You'd have to do that. You'd have to have that ability to, to pivot and make sure that, that you've got diversity in training and you've got inclusion and you've got engagement and you're finding ways to keep the team together um, and moving forward with these strategies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just looking at some of my notes from our conversation a little bit earlier, John. I remember you said uh, you're either going to work in the business or on the business. So true. Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, what I have found is that, you know, a business owner has a passion, so they open their business. And then they hire their first employee, their second employee, their third, so on and so forth. And there comes a point in time where they stop working on the business, meaning growing it, marketing it, whatever it is to, to make it flourish. And they're working in the business. They come in every day and they're just putting out fires. And you've got to have the right team in place or the right third-party provider to provide that team in order for you to then free up again so you can focus on the business once again. And I, I find a lot of business owners that I work with, they get to the point where they're burning out because that's not what they got into business to do. Because mm -hmm. if you have employees, you have to adhere to everything that has to do in that country, state, city, county, as it pertains to HR laws and payroll laws and workers' compensation and everything. And you are required to know everything. And it's not readily available all the time. I do this for a living and trying to find the information. That's like pulling teeth sometimes. You know it's there, but where is it? You got to search for it. As a business owner, really have that ability to do it and still grow their business. They don't. Yeah. And you, you take that on a global scale, right? So many companies choose to outsource a lot of these you know, business critical, but not strategically um, oriented processes. I think where that helps is when you do do that, um, essentially you're contracting that labor and that entity in that country or that locale is the one that's handling those headaches. You're just getting the process. You're just getting the work done, whereas they're kind of taking on the headaches. And that's another major positive because not only are my labor costs less, but so are my headaches because they're dealing with it. I don't have to worry about that particular country's legal aspects of, you know, human resource and payroll and everything because that company handles it. I just pay the invoice. Thank you so much for being on the show, John. It was a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Payday Podcast. I'm your host, David Barak, and this show is a production of CloudPay and our incredible team. To listen to more episodes, look for us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us on cloudpay.net.